Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. The preternaturally eloquent model Paloma Elsessa is my guest on today's show. Raised in Los Angeles, she moved to New York to pursue a successful career as a model, championed by the makeup artist Pat McGrath and American Vogue. Her not skinny body and her celebration of it, as well as her mixed race heritage and exceptional beauty, have made her the perfect mouthpiece for the diversity aware, digitally connected era. A responsibility she has embraced by communicating regularly with her adoring and highly engaged Instagram audience. Hey. Okay. Hi. One, two, one, two. One, two. Hi, Paloma. (laughs) Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm very well and I'm really pleased to see you in New York. Me too. Because I know you were in London last week, but... I didn't see you in London. I know, and we've been meaning to sit down for so long, and it's really nice to finally. Yeah, likewise. Um, You've seen my shift and stuff since we met, you know, so long ago. I know. So when did we meet? It was, I'm thinking, like five years? I think five. Four four or five. Four or five, yeah. And that was in London, and you had just started modelling then? Yeah. And so a lot's happened since then, which I really want to talk, hear more about. Um, This is your first time at Freeze New York this year? This is my first time this year. The last time I went to Freeze, it was when it was in the city on the FDR in a smaller venue, but um, still really amazing. So I'm excited to look around. Yeah, have a look around afterwards. Yeah, I like kind of like the quiet that exists outside you know it seems really peaceful when you first get here and like the green and then right now the situation is it's like misty outside so you outside it feels almost like sterile and then you walk in and you're just like it does all this amazing yeah. art so. there's also that sort of derelict bridge yeah on the south entrance that you'll probably see that as you leave which bridge is that do you know it's so beautiful. Have you seen that no, bridge? Oh my gosh, I didn't know this because it's Randall's Island and they always have like different festivals here and stuff. And oh, okay. when it's like the the island is inundated with people, they walk that bridge. Because oh, then the ferries get jammed up. And I was here for a governor's ball and our panorama. They always have stuff here now. How Do you know Manhattan well? Because you're from LA originally. I know originally. the city very well now, which is, well, I guess I don't know this bridge. <laughs> But pretty well, you know, yeah, I grew up in L.A. I was actually talking last night about when I moved here, I kind of just, like, usurped maintaining those, like, many, like, L.A. relationships when I moved here, and I just, like, went head into, like, meeting new people from New York. So So you moved here to study originally, right? I moved here to study, yeah, when I was, had just turned 18. I was going to the new school. I was... I guess when I went, it was for, like, when I entered, I knew what I, like, ended up formulating as a major and minor and stuff like that, but I went, and I knew she was interested in journalism, 
I felt that the program at the time didn't really cater. Not, I mean, the what was the un what was the college or um, the university? U the new school. I went to the liberal arts school, Eugene Lang. Yeah, so the new school has Parsons, Eugene Lang, which is a liberal arts school. They have a jazz school. Um, yeah, and I thought it was. I was really excited because I felt that if, for instance, I didn't connect with the environment at school, I had a whole city of people to like learn and grow, and you know, which became ultimately very distracting but <laughs> I'm really grateful for my like time in higher education I was just talking about it I was like I didn't get to finish because by the time I started modeling things I had to kind of make a pretty firm decision but there's a lot of information and like practices that I learned in school that I still use today which I think is you can go back and you can't go back I know I'm still paying for it but <laughs> But yeah, um, you know, in this podcast, we've got this format where you talk about things that we put into this cabinet that we have at Five Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse yes. back in London. And um, I know that you thought about some things that you would put in there to represent mm -hmm. you. So mm -hmm. what's the first thing you put in? Um, the first thing I put in was Kate Bush's Hounds of Love album, because I feel like it's the one album that has been a part of my life at every stage since I was a kid. Like my mom played it when I was like, for me in the car. I have all these really seminal, like iconic wit female leads, like musical leads in my life that really represented my childhood. And like I said, throughout all of it, you know, it's like Joan Armatrading, Kate Bush, Bjork, like all these weird, you know, kind of off kilter women or, you know, Lauren Hill or whatever. but. My mom played me that album. I rinsed that album. My mom can't listen to Kate Bush now because I was like 10 or 11 and I would just play it every single day. We would go to school and like do every single word to every single song. And I feel that so many of those songs, like I said, have kind of narrated my life. And even to this day, like when I'm at work, people think I want to put on Rihanna or something. And I'm like, you can play Kate Bush. <laughs> yeah, and I just love, like I, when I'm working, I love to tap into like her spirit, like her chaos, her authenticity, which like at the time, especially being a female artist was like so special. Like she wasn't doing disco, like she was, she just created her own lane. And it's kind of laid the bricks in the format for so many other artists to do the same. So, yeah, definitely that album. Well, um, tell me a bit more about growing up in LA because I know you spent. Are you, were you born? You were. You, you moved around a bit. A little, yeah. So my dad. Okay, so give context. So my dad is Swiss, Chile, is Swiss and Chilean, and he lived in Santiago, um, but left during the coup, and they migrated, or actually like sought refuge in the UK um, and my mom is African-American but my dad grew up in South London that's kind of where they ended up um, and he was adopted as culturally adopted by Jamaicans in his name like literally his what that's why like when I love watching um, what's that that movie is it Babylon, yeah, love watching Babylon because I feel like I can look at what my dad was experiencing in those times, like 70s and 80s, like as like a young, like Rasta, like a monk, you know, like he was in that club that gets broken up by the police at the end, you know what I mean? Um, so that 
dad, and then my dad was like, you know, he's a musician, all these things. So my mom was in London. My mom grew up in LA. My mom was in London. She's just like a crazy traveler. She's always, she had always been. Um, and she was in a dance company at the time and was in literally like an old school, like London phone booth. And my dad, both of my parents, still absolutely gorgeous. But like when I look at them when they're young, I was like, oh my God, I'll never measure up. <laughs> um, but yeah, my dad had like dreads down to his butt and like a face of like a carved cherub and my mom like stunning, like snatched, like gap in her teeth is like a beautiful, like dewy black American woman. Who do you look more like? I looked a lot more like my mom. I mean, my dad growing up and now I look a lot more like my mom. My face is kind of like molded. But I do look a lot like both. I think we can touch on other things about like race and identity, but I think prescriptively, um, people think I look like my dad because I don't look a, like prescriptively black. But when you really look at the characteristics of my mom's face and her behaviors and like her expressions, I look totally like my mom. But yeah, so my dad is probably like running down the street and some like wallabies <laughs> or whatever. And he like, she's on the phone and he's like tapping on the window <laughs> of the, of the, telephone booth and I wouldn't say that was it but that was essentially it so I was born in a bathtub in Kentish town um, and we left when I was I think two so I don't really have any memories of that time and that's when you moved to LA and that's when I moved to LA where I grew up yeah and you have a brother I have a I have an older sister named Kenyasa um, who's 10 years older than us um, and then I have a little brother who is 22, oh my God. And I have a little sister named Sage, um, and then I have a little sister who just turned 19 like a couple days ago. 19 and 2019. Are you well, close, close-knit family? We are, I mean, all families have chaos, but I do feel so lucky. I do this thing at night, um, like a gratitude list, and I just think about even if they drive me crazy, like there's people who just don't even have family, you know? So I'll take the chaos over the mm. isolation, you know? And like, I think when you grow up in a big family, you're constantly overwhelmed with other people's stuff, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's taught me so many lessons about compassion and boundaries and all these things that I don't think fundamentally I could have learned without that infrastructure you know we're all very like we know each other I, I feel completely spiritually connected to my family in a way that like maybe just how we grew up because I I was talking about it recently about because I grew up poor but I grew up like artist poor artist poverty which is different <laughs> than <laughs> what, you know what's artist poverty like well artist poverty is kind of like everything else is super enriched you just don't have money yeah. like you know so i like experience wise like we traveled i went I, you know i would like sit in the music studio at 2 a.m and like go to like a to like a barbecue at was your dad in a was your dad a in a, a, in a band or he in was in a band called curiosity killed the cat <laughs> um, but yeah, but he quite a successful band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he dipped. But he, my dad is amazing. He's like, he play. He predominantly now works more on like Afro-Cuban drumming. But he knows like all 
styles he's just brilliant you know like we grew up like entertainment wise like we didn't have cable but my dad would like be on the guitar and like my me and my sister would be performing and like just making songs and there's like you know my brother now has all my brothers very good with music as well he's started um producing and he was actually just on our dear friend earl sweatshirt's album he goes by navy blue by the way <laughs> um but we've all just been tapped into that like both like and then my mom is brilliant um she went to wellesley which is essentially like a it's a all female all women's like ivy league seven sisters where hillary rodham went so where we lacked money my mom always made sure that we went to the best schools we got all the things i never felt without but then we were also like living in my grandparents house so i didn't you know so that kind of like i saw stress and also compared to the my surroundings at these very like prestigious like predominantly white schools i would notice my without but when i was home i never felt that way you know what i mean which now at 27 yeah i wouldn't trade so yeah yeah because i think when you talk about poverty and what that looks like for a lot of people like for a long time I'm sure my parents didn't make more than $30,000 a year I'm pretty sure they still don't but I, don't, I never thought about it as much. I thought about it but I always felt full you know we we're always being challenged with music and books and experience and culture and these like really important conversations that are so valuable and that like, have shaped all me and my siblings lives today what else would you put into the cabinet? Um, I guess to what the culture and books. My mom gave me um, "Ain't I a Woman" by Bell Hooks when I was in the seventh grade, because that's who we are. But I had all these questions. I always a very was a very very curious child. Always like why, but why, why this, why that, why, why, why. Um, so she gave me that book and I felt like my mind exploded with answers to like the black experience the black female experience you know I think um, witnessing having a black mother has definitely and not looking like I said prescriptively black has been a very like nuanced feeling in how I move throughout the world and I, I was quite inquisitive about that feeling and so it was nice to read and then just kind of like once you go you know you have this introduction to this kind of literature just like how far you can go to kind of give footing which like your emotions and your feelings are always valid but like literature and like other knowledge will just like cements all of that and it really gave me such an incredible infrastructure to have the conversations that I wanted to have you know so I always like remember that feeling of like oh my like yeah literally like my mind being cracked open like oh my god these are the answers like I never knew that like this is how people you know other women have felt and like oh my god you know I felt that I wanted to be like on the front lines of like mm. martyring for like every black woman you know but that's so interesting I, yeah. that you felt like that rather than feeling because um, you know often people who are mixed race or have loads of different nationalities and they feel like they don't fit in and they always say they felt intimidated or that you yeah. know, it took them a while to find their place but for you it sounds like you had that well, confidence and that self-possession really yeah. early on. Yeah, I mean I think that um, it's really, it is I, still early on but then actually like as time 
arced, it became harder to find that autonomy and identity that like now as an adult, I'm still seeking, you know, I'm actually like really want to work on a podcast of my own, really delving into like the nuances of the mixed identity. Um, because as much as I say, there's all this literature, there's not that much literature also on like having a black mother. There's a lot on having a white mother and a black father. Um, and it's actually a lot of the literature is written by uh, British artists uh, or British writers and stuff. Um, but, you know, and because now people of color are really afforded the space, but it's still quite sticky, you know? because I grew up in a predominantly, I grew up in a black household. I grew up with my grandparents from Tennessee. Like, you know, my grandmother's 93 years old, like seeing and experiencing through them on an ancestral level, but not really being afforded the space to be like black excellence, yeah. you know? Because I will never know what it's like to walk into a bank as a black woman. I know what it can feel like. Like I can, I, I can empathize or, but, it's different because I walk into the world as a Hispanic woman, even though I don't identify as such always. I identify as brown or whatever that may be. But all but when I was younger, I was aware that I was different, but it wasn't all of these micros of it. You know what I mean? That as I said, like time arced on, I've like been more aware of it. And I just think it's about forming conversation around it, but definitely. Yeah the reading and the, the writings, historical writings and present writings and stuff like that has just like shaped feeling like, okay, I feel strange about this or how do I walk into this with knowledge and awareness, you know? Yeah. And then as well as identifying in terms of um, race, racial identity, you've spoken a lot about um, physical yeah. Um, identity, where you fit in there. Yeah. Um, and a few of the interviews with you that I've read, you've spoken about having been told that you have this beautiful face, yeah. but you don't have the body to be a model. Or yeah. Um, were you into fashion and were you aware of that whole scene when you were growing up, or is it something you only discovered once you moved to New York and started modeling? Um, well, I think that people sometimes get confused about fashion. Is that I wasn't like, I didn't like know what like Loewe was but I loved clothes you know what I mean so I wasn't like obsessed with like every magazine but I loved style what were and the loved... things what were the brands that kids were obsessed with in LA and is that in the, in the yeah there was yeah, like 2000s yeah. but there was like in LA I mean LA has a, a, a interesting mashup of stuff because there's an amazing like Chicano culture that's was super influential to me. I think skate culture, as corny as it sounds, was probably the most influential style for me because it all it gave me options that I didn't not that I didn't know I have. I mean, even if it's interesting that when I was younger, I definitely had held harbored a lot of mistrust and hatred towards my body. I didn't trust my body to be good enough because I saw nothing in my per my school periphery even really my friends um to tell me that it was okay you know however something maybe it's because my parents always told me that i was 
you know, they told me I was beautiful, but they also told me I was brilliant. And they also told me I was all these things all the time that I saw my friends wearing something and I would still wear it, like my thinner friends. And I would still wear it. Like you could ask any of my friends from high school and they'd be like, yeah, Paloma just always wore what she wanted to wear. And I don't know where that quote unquote confidence come from, comes from, like body positive buzzwords of all time. <laughs> but like, I don't know where that came from, but I always felt inspired by style to represent how I was feeling. You know, I remember in like fourth grade, that summer I had started like really like listening to The Clash and like Operation Ivy and like all these like punk bands and I just like went full force because I was like this is really representative of like my spirit <laughs> and then I like went back and we were supposed to sing like um, Proud to be an American anthem and I was like I'm not singing that and I had like a, a buck fush sticker on my binder and this is like in fourth grade but so because I was like interacting with like new feelings of like rage and like what is you know but then I oscillated by seventh or or eighth grade or ninth grade to like kind of wanting to be a part of the pack and dressing kind of how episode was like denim mini skirts and like these like really expensive like cotton tank tops called C and C which yeah. I yeah do you remember yeah, those? I remember those. Yeah. yeah that like everybody wore that like all my friends would buy new and like some like I had a a friend, my, a friend of my dad's who had got the hookup to the sample sale, so I would get those ones. So, like I said, my artist poverty. We had the hookup. We weren't buying it fresh, but, um, yeah, so, but throughout all of my time, like, and then, yeah, once, I never could really find, like, pants that fit me, and I was speaking earlier about wearing men's clothes as a means of survival but which also spoke to like who I was at the time because yeah like all my friends skated like so cool I'm just gonna wear like dickies and car like I can get my size and they're cheap and I've worn them for so so long so it's interesting how they've now been like centered in fashion in this way in this trend which like on a personal level I'm like this isn't a trend this is my <laughs> life but um but it's amazing, you know, like I said, it was like I could find pants that fit me and things that were affordable, but then I would kind of like lay that into like wearing like a juicy sweat top or something yeah. like that. <laughs> so then, so what, what else would go in the cabinet? What else would go in the cabinet? Um, I guess I, I thought about this and now I'm kind of blacking out. Oh, my number necklace. Um, my number necklace, it's just, it says 92, it was the year I was born, but it is about a group of my girlfriends, international girl crew, we all have these number necklaces, which like, the necklace isn't as important as it, what it represents. Like I constantly feel centered in this like global ecosystem that who I else, have. Which, who, who so Charmadine Reed, Grace Ladoja, Madeline Poole, um, Camille Garmendia, Phoebe Lovett, um, and what do they all have in common? Well, we, what we all have in common is, is that we're all of our own businesses. Separately of having all of our own businesses, we are, we are the strong female leads in our lives, you know. Um, <laughs> and it's incredible because, you know, even when we first met, like Sharma and Madeline were in the same industry. Madeline was very successful and is a very successful nail artist and Sharma had you know, moved from styling into Wah World, which was a very successful um, 
nail art business and you know at the time Grace was directing videos and Camille has been styling and she moved into costume design and Phoebe was doing shirt was was a writer predominantly interviewing people and then but throughout all of our careers like when I first started I was like doing some writing I was like really I'm the youngest of the crew so um, but our careers have evolved all with this foundation of like support for one another and how to create realities for what we want to do and how we can help one another you know and I think and it's all because we all live we're called international girl crew because we live in all different places mainly New York London and Los Angeles and how we come together is going on trips together around the world you know sometimes it's for work around the world and sometimes we link up in these little places whether it's Greece or Mexico or London or Italy or whatever it may be and the necklace is very representative just that like divine connection and it's been really beautiful for us to all watch each other evolve and yeah like and be an all-female crew that also doesn't mean it's not just reduced to us like the, what we really try and like talk about is that it's not just reserved for us like it's reserved for an ecosystem of women or female identifying or really anyone who wants to be involved who like likes to work hard who wants to get women paid who wants who want amazing things to happen in the world and who want to like rock the status quo which we all have done in interesting very different but cool ways so you moved to New York to study and then um, quite soon after that you were discovered yeah well pick you were contacted by Pat McGrath the yeah makeup artist yeah on Insta I think she saw you on Instagram yeah there was like yeah up until that point because like kind of going back to just I've never been thin, so I felt never that that would ever, ever be an option for me. Like I said, my tools to dressing my body weren't to look at plus size clothes. I really didn't even know the industry totally existed. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I just wore men's clothes or just like, you know, whatever it may be. So when I moved here, that was wasn't even really it wasn't that it wasn't on the table it just wasn't the plus size model shape identity style was like reserved for one type of woman and we never really saw her like it's a it's always been a booming industry but like not to all of us you know um, and Instagram has done this amazing way of like rocking that and like cracking everything open. And so when I was at the time like working at like a skate shop, writing, waitressing, doing all these things, well, my first introduction to the idea was um, Stevie Dance, who is a stylist and a fashion editor at Pop Magazine. Uh, we were, I was just like sitting with all my guy friends, I think at that little park by Cafe Select, Petrosino Park. And, you know, Stevie comes in, like, gorgeous, tan Australian woman, like, kindest heart. And she's like, babe, things are changing. <laughs> like, oh, whatever, how you do an Australian accent. And I was sitting there with, like, a nose ring and, like, a dirty hoodie. Like, what? Like, <laughs> I just had no idea. But I was working so hard just to maintain here, like I said, also in school, all these things. So she was like, 
I'm going to introduce you to some agencies. She was like, you can make real money. Like, you know, she brought up Ashley Graham. She was like, have you heard of Crystal Wren? I do remember Crystal Wren because I was like, oh, those old photos of her like that she did with like Vogue Paris and I was like oh my god this is sick but I still didn't because I I never felt like a bombshell either I never connected to that so I just was like that's cool like I literally never was like oh that's cool but like people say I have a pretty face like blah 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 um so when she told me that which has kind of been this like common thread motif about just like wanting like being able to step into your like quote unquote like glory when like people believe in you you know and like how important that is for like younger generation or just other people to like believe in them and give them that platform because without I don't think I would have been able to step into that you know and first all you know Stevie introduced me to everyone all the agencies said no I came in I'm like five seven like not like snatched hourglass like literally like nose ring in a dirty hoodie like I didn't know what to do but between that time then I had started I went on tour with my friend Earl because um, I'm always down for a new experience <laughs> um, I was helping him tour manage and like managing like the merch and blah 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 we went on the tour for two months and I got a call from a friend at the time who was working with Pat and was like Pat really wants to work with you. I had, I had known who she was because she's like probably the most famous makeup artist ever. And but I also when I did like more research on her, like when I found out that being asked, I was like, oh, every ID cover that I was obsessed with and yeah. every editorial that I was. Well, like, so okay. she's black. And she, exactly, and she is a black woman, which I did know too because my mom would talk to me about her, kind of like just saying, I don't know. And that was really, so when I was asked to come shoot her Gold 001, her first product, her first shoe, I think, I mean, maybe they had done a beauty test. So it's like she was just launching her first um, product line. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, it's like testing it out, really. Um, they were like, I was in, I was at, is it Lollapalooza? Some festival that's in Philly. And they're like, we would love for you to come this weekend. I was like, you guys have to go. And I went, and yeah, to this day, it's probably still one of my favorite shoots of all time, maybe just because it's like very sacred to me. But um, yeah, to be, when I met her properly, yeah, I just felt like I was with like my, like this amazing, like charming, warm, like aunt, like she gave me like family and to see a black, plus size woman in a space dominating that space for 20 years and just everything that she touches on which is like hard work and like always having to be conscious of like the time in which she had to rise through those ranks that like the level of level of respect and like adoration that I have for her and her work and truly how she treated me because when I stepped on set I had no idea I didn't really even like know like expressions or like movement like I was still really like at that point I'd done a couple shoots but <coughs> it was nothing like she made me feel that I was a hundred and fifty five thousand percent supposed to be there which I never had felt before and even five years in there's still times when I'm constantly having to advocate for myself in my mind that I'm supposed to be there you know but every shoot I did with her she like made me feel divine 
you know like every part and like I mean it's kind of messing me up now with makeup artists because when you start with Pat McGrath you're always gonna yeah. <laughs> you're like what's that um, fa face and body color you're using yeah. um but yeah and so you know she took me to Paris for the first time in my adult life she showed me family in an industry that I felt completely alone in um so she always is very dear to me and I feel so grateful for her and then since then so how, how long ago was that that was five years ago yeah. now and yeah. in that time your modeling career has taken off uh, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you've been featured on magazine covers you've worked you've done shoots with Vogue yeah what are the highlights what are, um, the high there's you know what's like kind of dark about working in fashion is that it moves so fast you never get to like relish in your glory you never get to like be focused on you're always focused on what's the next thing which is kind of not I mean it's not really in line with like my ethos which is like trying to maintain be rooted in some kind of gratitude that's why I'm five gratitude yeah. lists at the end of the night because you're always you know because it's an industry we live in, in, in an industry in cities of dissatisfaction so it's like you know it's hard to really think about but I think throughout my career I think definitely I think maybe it was 2017 or 2018 now I was on the cover of British Vogue um, alongside some really amazing models and it was um, yeah Edwards I think it was Edward Ennen Edward, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edwards in his first year at British Vogue, and just to be a part of that reckoning, you know, like he really like he brought the ruckus, and he's maintained that ruckus and that needed ruckus, and so I was alongside so many amazing models and women and just it was just powerful look at what didn't have to cater to anything else other than like it being powerful and then I followed that up I did an ID cover and then I've done a couple other Vogue covers and things like that to like ever think that my life would be like a cover girl is crazy you know to be printed in the pages of American Vogue to get personal emails from Anna Wintour like you could not I could not have told my like dirty hoodie seventeen year old <laughs> self what my life would look like. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, what else are you putting in the cabinet? Well, I guess I don't know a place. I mean, I didn't. Gr my family like we would go on like kind of trips, but like you know, vacation holidays are expensive. So once I you know financial stability has been one of the greatest hinders and gifts in my hindrances and gifts in my career just that like I never really like learned how to handle it but I'm learning um, but the being able to afford to like go on holidays uh, with my friends and you know like I just went for my birthday to Puerto Escondido and I literally had like a spiritual it's in it's um, in Oaxaca in Mexico okay. it's like a coastal town and it was just absolutely amazing like it was just like when I went there I was like oh this is a place that I want to come back to for the next 20 years which sounds crazy just because I just went what was it but about it that you liked so much the like that it was chill like that it was really relaxed but also 
really culturally rich like there was like an amazing like artisan element mexican people are so kind so hardworking, so receptive like i just experienced such a nice interaction and like kind of how how tourism and the existing community can like be in harmony you know it was really beautiful to witness because sometimes when you go to other places the tourism oversees kind of that real community that exists and what I loved about Puerto Escondido was that it was not pretentious at all it's not like super bougie or anything like it's not Tulum you're not going to run into a bunch of people you know but we you staying in a hotel or did you do Airbnb? we did an Airbnb this amazing place um, that was like new on Airbnb. Like the host was amazing. It was actually really funny because it's it was like t it's like a linear duplex that was kind of said to be an entire home. So when me and my like eight girlfriends got there, we were like, wait, we're gonna be sharing this place. So I sent this like polite but very direct email about being disappointed. But it's funny because we ended up just then it actually was like four like young like Mexican Mexican guys from Mexico City and we hung out with them the whole time like very platonically yeah but we had a great time so it was funny and just like very representative of just like how the tr trip was and how the city catered to that like just or the town catered to that like there's amazing beach amazing food so yeah that's a really special place to me and just the, at the essence of travel yeah. and like when you yeah. um I was just when you your Instagram account yeah which has a sizable following and mm. has a very engaged community mm. do you ever feel like when you're on holiday you just want to switch off and stop posting for a while yeah because there is that element where instagram sort of becomes like work i it definitely i talk about this a lot um that was also really nice about this specific vacation and just how i want to vacation moving for holiday moving forward in all times is that I travel, yeah, like I travel, we all, we travel so much and when you need to take a vacation from your vacation because you have to like t do a photo diary or like do some weird thing, like it's not fun and it isn't a sense of refuge and it isn't a sense of relaxation. Like I didn't really like curate my looks, like my face was essentially covered, I was, because I had to work after I was like scared of getting sunburned so, uh, I looked gray the whole time because I had so much sunscreen <laughs> on. But, like, it, that wasn't the purpose. Like, one, the, 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 the central part of what I said, even when I said to my girlfriends, I was like, we don't have to do all the things. We still did these amazing things. We went swimming with algae in the middle of the night. Like, it was incredible. Um, bioluminescence tour, I highly suggest, if any of you ever have the opportunity. Um, but, yeah, like... It ju I just came back rested. I felt totally in my body. I didn't feel like I was performing for anybody. And yeah, Instagram, as much as I try to insert some transparency or like parts of my identity that fashion or whatever doesn't really like uh, give me the space, it's still work, you know? Like me in essence, like inserting that transparency is a response to feeling like, okay, I'm always being dressed up by people. Let me know, Let I need to make sure people know what I actually dress like or what I think about or how I feel about certain topics or blah, blah, blah. So it's just a platform, but it is all about Paloma as, I guess I wouldn't even say a brand, which, cause that sounds heinous and makes me want to pop my eyes out. 
but like Paloma as a thing, yeah. you know? But then I also don't feel responsible to, and I love and I so deeply appreciate my community on Instagram, but they want what they see of me. And it's like, I think it's really important to maintain and harness real relationships so that like your Instagram doesn't become you all the time, you know? And when I when I kind of sift through or even when I scroll, I'm like, that's a work person. Like what I have now amazing close work relationships as like dark and insidious are the travesties of the fashion industry. There's also amazing people that I've made like real, intimate, honest, authentic relationships with who I can so like who? Um, Give me an example. Alistair McKim. Photographer uh, stylist. Stylist. Love so deeply. Um, Carlos Nazario, stylist, love so deeply. Even I just worked with, like in London, I was working with like Cynthia Harvey, who's a hairstylist, and Amy and Julia Sar. You know all these people that I'm like I feel still like connected to. You know what I mean? But like Alistair, a hundred percent, and as in the news, like when I run into Inez on the street, it's like I'm feeling like I'm seeing like an old friend. You know, like there's a lot more intimacy than people mm. you know getting a photo photo taken is really intimate somebody dressing you is really yeah. intimate and I think now yeah. the practices have changed so much but I'm always aware of the people that have always practiced that without it have it having now being like buzzy like I remember the first time I ever worked with Alistair he asked me like how I felt in the clothes which is nobody had ever asked me that before you know, and so I hold that really dear, and that's like somebody that like when it doesn't come to work, I can ask, "How are you?" And he can ask the same, and he I can answer genuinely how I feel. Do you think that because um, you sort of your success is tied in with this cultural moment that's happening in terms of um, racial diversity, yeah. acceptance of different body types, and you have this community of people who rely on you and reach out to you. Um, do you think that we're in a moment of real change or do you think that it's a fashion trend that will pass? Um, I do think we're in a time of real change because it is so different than even, like, actually, I, I'm, like, prepping for the Met, and I was going through all the, you know, those iconic... The Met Ball, Met, which yeah, is the on Met Gala, tomorrow. which is on Monday. Monday. Yeah, there's a lot of things that happen between now and Monday. Yeah. Pre-Met party tonight, I have all oh, the fittings. Oh, where's the pre-Met party? It is at Stonewall, that iconic LGBTQ club in the West Village, or, or bar in the West Village, mm -hmm. um, hosted by Sally Singer, so, who's the editor yes. of Vogue.com. But yeah, so I'm going through all these like iconic references, but I'm like, oh wow, like, I mean, given like in the 90s, the body type was different, but even if you look at like 2013 Prada or Galliano or all these like, you know, iconic years, it's like the only, like there's like Chanel Iman is the only black girl in the show. And there was definitely no diver, and that time was like still so thin, at least not at least, I wouldn't say at least. In the 90s, you're like, you're not alarmed and you're not alarmed by how thin that was a particularly thin moment what it? the 2000 yeah yeah. That yeah it was like 2000 up until 
I mean, even still, honestly, I mean, like now different, but like runway is always very like jarring because you know, campaigns you see so much more diversity and all of these things, but um, <laughs> like when I talk, I'm like, um, but then runway, like I said, is very jarring, and that's kind of where you get to see kind of the the seedy bits of sample size and like what that means, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it takes, I think that for so long, the blueprint for fashion has relied on fear and the way, quote unquote, it was done. And just this continuum and for an industry that is so embanked on newness and da 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 da, there is, a, the blueprint is not new, you know? But I do believe that just in what we're seeing, trend or not, it is all very new. You know, when you look at casting now, whether intentioned or authentic, um, or like, you know, requ required yeah. or honestly done that way, it's still happening. You so do know? you think um, when it is done in that way, like quotas, and t do you think that's a good thing? Well, the only thing is kind of, I, it kind of reminds me of like, why we have the president we have right now is that people like Obama era, everyone was in this like resp everyone's so pleased we have a black president. All these genders are being pushed forward. There's also a lot of issues with his presidency, I will say, but I love Obama. <laughs> but people who didn't feel that they had a voice for what's going on hid out in the corners until they had their time to come through and then they, it was overwhelming. So I do become unnerved by those who really just love old school fashion and how it was, quote unquote. Um, but when I have conversations and those, the ecosystem again that I used to bring up a lot, um, that is being formed in the new generation of fashion, um, it's honest, you know? So I don't, I can't say whether or not, and I think that now, like, whether like, you know, Ashley or I or Adut or all these, like, you know, like, figures in Adut, what- Adut, the catch, she's the yeah, yeah. black model who's yeah, just she's come a, recently. Australian, yeah. South Sudanese model who is just brilliant and has just like rocked the industry to Ukbard, who's like a new face who's just on the cover of ID and like watched Valentino for her first show, which was like an entire show dedicated to black beauty in a way that wasn't like, you know, pandering to the stereotypes of blackness. It was just like giving an amazing platform to all of the beautiful black women and black models that exist. And it was br brilliant specifically about that show because there was a lot of like, Afro-Latina models in there. And so it was just a really important moment. Um, so I do think, because, you know, because I don't, I don't know thick designer for Valentino Piccoli. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, I felt that that was genuine. I think he was in awe of black beauty, you know, and like how to give a space to that. Um, and there's a lot of people where it's like, oh, when I'm on set, it's not like, oh, let's get a plus size girl for Proto. It's like, oh, well, we love the way Paloma moves or how she looks in the clothes or yeah. who she is or what she has to say or, you know, we're in a new generation where models can 
you can insert all of the corners of your identity into your work, you know? What's the final thing you'll put in the cabinet? Oh my God, the final thing? Um, this one's rough. <laughs> okay. The final thing, the final thing, the final thing I'm going to put in my little cabinet. There's all these, um, like, like black iconography shirts that I've stolen from my brother, I've gotten from my brother, we, that we exchange, and so we've amassed this little collection. Um, and they're really special to me. I don't let anyone borrow them, I don't let anyone touch them, I have like a little drawer, I have like Malcolm X, MLK, like amazing where, ones. Where do you get them from? All over eBay. The, Japan has this amazing, they're holding the big collection. But those shirts are really special to me because those are shirts that like I'm so excited to give my kids and that me and my brother will look back and be like, oh, we amassed this insane collection of t-shirts that like even, and not on a material level, you know, it's just like these vintage shirts. And when you think about like, who wore them before, or like who printed it, or like why those were printed, are really special to me. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, Pluma, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on. I know. And it's lovely. Enjoy the Met. I hope you have a great time, and I'm looking forward to seeing photos of you. Oh, I'm really you awesome in your dress. That was an episode of the Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.